I've got you now, Dr. Evil. Not this time. Come, Mr. Bigglesworth. See you in the future, Mr. Powers. <laughs> There's this scene at the start of the 1997 film Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery, where Austin is chasing his nemesis, Dr. Evil, when Dr. Evil freezes himself in a cryogenic chamber. Austin decided to also get frozen, and then 30 years into the future, is woken up because Dr. Evil has returned. So who is this Austin Powers? The ultimate gentleman spy. Irresistible to women, deadly to his enemies, a legend in his own time. Attention, stage one. Laser cutting beginning. The movie shows Austin going through this reanimation process as he's brought back to life. And understandably, he's a little confused. Where, where am I? You're in the Ministry of Defence. It's 1997. You've been cryogenically frozen for 30 years. Who are these people? The shouting is a temporary side effect of the unfreezing process. Yes, I'm having difficulty controlling the volume of my voice! While cryonics has often been portrayed in movies, the truth is there are people in real life who are opting to go through this cryonics process in the hope of one day being de-thawed and achieving immortality. We are seeing the dawn of a new era of possibilities unfold on planet Earth. We are experiencing gigantic leaps in science, technology, genetics, and emergency medicine. That's from a video for Alcor, one of the few providers of cryonic services globally. It sounds like a beautiful way to experience a second life. But what do we even know about cryonics? Is human preservation at all possible on our horizon? Or is this just a giant money grab? Welcome to a brand new season of Moonshot, the show exploring the world's biggest ideas and the people making them happen. I'm Christopher Lawson, and we've got an amazing season in store for you. In this episode, we're examining cryonics, because there's a number of companies now offering it as a service for when you die. But is there even a remote possibility of you one day being brought back to life? That's coming up on this episode of Moonshot. The possibility of life after death is explored in Phoenix, Arizona by the Cryonic Society. They believe that cryobiology, the freezing of biological matter, is the answer. They propose freezing bodies in cold storage capsules. Scientists are mostly skeptical. Back in the 1960s, the idea of cryonics was just a pipe dream. It all started in 1962 when physics teacher Robert Edinger published a book called The Prospect of Immortality. In the book, Edinger assumes that if you can keep someone frozen for long enough, medical technology will eventually make it possible to bring them back to life. And in 1967, Dr. James Bedford became the first human ever to be cryogenically frozen. A model demonstrates how one person, a California man who died of cancer, has already been frozen. A freezing liquid replaces the blood supply and the subject is wrapped in aluminum foil and placed in a capsule at 220 degrees below zero centigrade. 
those early experiments didn't always go to plan. Nobody knew what they were doing, and the number one challenge faced was keeping the bodies cold, keeping them frozen, which is a pretty big part of running a cryonics facility. But these days, things have evolved, and a lot more people are choosing cryonics as a path for their future after death. Do you remember the first time you heard about cryonics? Yes, yes. Uh, it was when I was quite young, in fact, uh, just coming out of university, and I read The Prospect of Immortality by Robert Ettinger. Uh, he's actually almost the father of cryonics in a sense, but he wrote a book. And it basically, the idea of a book was that if you uh, could suspend or freeze a human body at very low temperatures, medical technology, uh, science, uh, computer technology, all the rest would advance over time, uh, enable to repair the body and bring you back basically to health in a young body. So I'm almost defining cryonics there, but that's what I read, that, uh, that that's what he had said in The Prospect of Immortality. Uh, it sounded reasonable to me. I mean, I wasn't 100% sold, but it sounded reasonable. So basically I said, good, I'll put it aside for a while. It was a good idea. I'll wait till I get to the age that I might need it. This is Peter Solakides, one of the founders of Southern Cryonics, an organisation aiming to build the first cryonics facility in the Southern Hemisphere. Although he'd read The Prospect of Immortality after university, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that Peter really started exploring cryonics as a viable option for him after he dies. Basically, I had thought, it's a chance to live a longer life. But that's what I had thought. Um... But getting put in a grave or cremated is zero chance. So I had thought there's a chance. And I'd always, I've always been a very curious person. So I've always wanted to see how things turned out. Uh, I wanted to see uh, what the uh, progress of science would be like. What was being worked on now, how it would look in the future. I'm also very optimistic generally about the future. So for me, living a very long life was a very major, um, let me call it, influence on me wanting to uh, get into chronics and, uh, and use chronics because that's the only way I saw at this stage a chance to live that long life. Coming from Australia, though, the process for actually having your body preserved is more complex than it is overseas. There's only a couple of facilities in the world offering cryopreservation, with the two largest being Alcor, based in Arizona, and the Cryonics Institute in Michigan. So what does the preservation process actually look like? I'm at my hospital bed, and an emergency response team, a cryonics emergency response team, is called to that hospital bed. They are professionals. Uh, There are also funeral directors involved, and also... Uh, people from organize, from the cryonics organization as well. So they come to your hospital bed. After you are legally declared dead, that team uh, uh, commences cooling with water bath, ice packs. They apply cardiopulmonary support. They apply anticoagulants. All this is to prevent clogging uh, of your of your blood and to make sure you keep an oxygen supply to your brain and to lower your temperature. From there, your body is transported to a facility where the preservation process can start. This might be a cryonics facility or it may be a funeral home. Your blood is then replaced with a cryoprotectant. It's a type of human-grade antifreeze. 
The cryoprotectin essentially stops ice crystals from forming in your body during the cooling process, and it's at this stage that the real cooling begins. First, your body is packed with dry ice to cool you down to... About minus 80 degrees. That's minus 80 degrees Celsius for those of you listening in the US. You're suspended, but you're not really suspended solid yet. You're sort of suspended in a pre-solid state. You can be in that situation for about two weeks without major degradation of your brain or your body. So you've now got two weeks. And it's at this stage that your body needs to go to a cryonics facility. Once you're there, you'll be cooled down slowly to liquid nitrogen temperatures, where your body needs to stay until you're ready to be woken up. After you're brought down to liquid nitrogen temperatures, you're placed for long-term storage uh, in in a cryostat, which is basically a large metal insulated tank. And it's filled with liquid nitrogen. And theoretically, uh, there should be no further uh, uh, degradation of your body at that point, and you basically can be in there hundreds of years as long as you are looked after. As Peter researched more and more about cryonics, he realised that having a local facility in Australia would make the process much easier. So together with some other cryonics enthusiasts, they launched Southern Cryonics. We needed 16 to 18 founding members to get the facility started. And, you know, they each had to put in $50,000 upfront cash, 50000 Australian dollars. We got 27. So at least the interest level there came out a lot higher than what our expectations were. If you're looking at a map of Australia, Southern Cryonics will be located in Holbrook, which is a small regional town close to the state border between New South Wales and Victoria. A location partly chosen because of its proximity to Australia's two largest cities. Basically, that really covers about 55-50% of Australia's population if you take all the surrounding areas and you take Melbourne and Sydney. Number two is we did an analysis there of you know, whether it was subject to flooding, fires, earthquakes, a whole lot of various things, and it had very low risk in that area. Number three was that the people there, uh, the, the, what I call the local government there, was very responsive and very positive to what we were doing. You know, the mayor, while the mayor may have said she didn't necessarily believe in cryonics, she said she very much welcomes us to be there. You know, so there were a whole lot of other... Oh, let me add the main one, which I missed out, is that it's on the main liquid nitrogen route. There are three companies that supply liquid nitrogen into that area. And the most critical thing for cryonics is the supply of liquid nitrogen. How many people are you expecting to be able to preserve at um, your new facility? Okay, we are buying the cryostats, those uh, containers that I mentioned people are suspended in, but uh, we're, we're buying one now that will hold four to five people. The facility at the moment is built for 10 of those, which is 50, about 40, let's say 40 people will be able to at the facility as it currently is, but it's on a large block of land and is very easily scalable. I think we worked out we could probably, if we ever reach this number, it's probably going to be 200 years before we do, but we we probably could hold 600 or more people there uh, if we had enough cryostats because the land is quite large. The facility is very simple. It's essentially just a warehouse where you put these. So it's very simple. Uh, So we could probably hold 600 or more Uh, fairly comfortably. At the moment, we will have a container for four to five, but the building itself can house 10 of those containers, so we can do 40. 
Southern Cryonics expects your preservation will be paid for from your life insurance. It's a similar model to what we've seen in the US. And provided they get enough members joining each year for a small annual fee, the facility will remain viable until such time as your body can be reanimated. But is this at all feasible? And who decides when you should even be woken up? That's coming up right after this break. So far, we've explored cryonics from the perspective of a facility that's keen for you to become a member and eventually have your body preserved. But is the idea of reanimating a human even plausible? To figure that out, we need a scientist. So I guess if we go back to why I became a scientist working on aging, I became a scientist working on aging because I don't want to die. That's, that's basically the reason. My name is João Pedro Magalhães, and I'm a professor at the University of Liverpool. I'm a biologist by training, um, but I'm very interested in uh, applications in cryopreservation as well, uh, both medical applications, both research applications, and I mean, ultimately, I'm interested in ways of avoiding death. Uh, I think death is you know, an eternal prison, eternal oblivion. So uh, if we're going to do something about death, well, ultimately, if we're lucky enough to, to survive diseases and accidents and, and so on, um, we will age and we will die inevitably. That's inevitable. So so that's why I decided to, to focus on aging. Uh, because I felt that, you know, no matter how rich or su- successful you are in life, you know, you are going to lose everything in the end. You are going to die. You're going to be Jeff Bezos with all the money in the world. It doesn't matter. So that's why I decided to focus on aging, because I wanted to cure aging. That was the goal. I wanted to cure aging because I wanted to uh, prevent um, death and I wanted to prevent suffering and disease. Uh, for myself and, and the ones I love. Jha has spent his career focused on research around ageing, something that we don't actually understand. We don't know why we get old, we just do. But we do know that it's possible to slow down the process. We don't know exactly why we age at uh, cellular molecular levels. What are the uh, physiological reasons for for us to age we don't understand that well there's there's a number of theories there's you know, one idea is that um, damage accumulates in our DNA so we have mutations we have uh, different levels of chemical modifications in the DNA that cause damage and these accumulate gradually throughout life and ultimately cause aging um, but that's a theory. It's not proven. There's there's some evidence for it, but it's not um, definitive evidence. Uh, and there's other theories as well. But um, I, I guess the point is we don't know yet why we age, which is also what makes it difficult to intervene in the process of aging. Although we have now, we now know of dietary and pharmacological and genetic Uh, manipulations that allows us to significantly retard aging in animal models. 
Now, this talk about aging might seem a little off track, but remember when it comes to cryopreservation, the whole point of being preserved is so that you can wait it out until we figured out a cure for aging or figured out how to fix the disease that you died from. If you put animals under caloric restriction, yes, they live longer. Yes, they live healthier for longer. That's wonderful. If we can do that to humans, that's going to be revolutionary. Uh, but they still die in the end. They, they will still develop age-related diseases. Um, and even in animal models, there's no way we know of, of um, developing therapies to cure aging. So it is quite a long shot to think that we're going to be able to cure aging within my lifetime. I think it's very unlikely. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but I think it's very unlikely. So if I am going to age and I am going to die, well, is there a plan B? And yes, the plan B would be uh, cryopreservation, being able to uh, preserve my body in hope that one day um, it will be possible to repair the damage uh, and live again. And I mean, I say hope because I, I do think that's a long shot as well. Um, but that is how I came to cryopreservation from this notion of life extension uh, and longevity and, and wanting to overcome the natural biological limits of human beings. It, is, is this kind of like it, it seems very science fiction like is, you know is, is, it, is it at all even possible and do you, do you think we will ever be able to you know preserve humans yes I, I think it's possible it doesn't violate any laws of physics there's animals that can be cryopreserved and, um, and they can uh, be revived um, it's possible to do so in human cells and small tissues um so so yes it is well there's no reason to think it isn't possible uh, and i do think it will be possible one day in fact i think you know if you look at different diseases biological processes different um biological or biomedical problems i don't think cryopreservation ranks at the top in terms of difficulty i mean i think aging is very difficult i think Cancer and Alzheimer's diseases are very difficult diseases to tackle. I don't think cryopreservation ranks that highly, actually. I think if we had the resources um, that we dedicate to cancer, for example, or Alzheimer's, if we spent those resources on cryopreservation, I'm fairly confident we will be able to uh, develop the technologies for safe um, cryopreservation of human beings. Uh, because it's... Um, it's an engineering problem. It's not so much a biological problem. I mean, cancer, aging, Alzheimer's, those are all biological problems still in the sense that we don't know what causes aging. Um, well, I guess conceptually we know cancer is caused by mutations, but that we still don't understand exactly um, at a very detailed level what happens in cancer. And we don't know what causes Alzheimer's disease. Uh, on the other hand, cryopreservation is, is a different type of problem. It's more of an engineering problem. We, we know we can cryopreserve cells. We know we can cryopreserve small tissues. So it's, it's mostly a question of scaling up what technologies and techniques we have already. And of course, optimizing those techniques to larger tissues, to larger human organs, and ultimately to, to a whole human being. Um, so it's a different type from a conceptual and technical perspective is a different kind of problem. So, so yes, I'm, I'm convinced that it is possible to cryopreserve human beings. Uh, I'm convinced 
it's much easier to do than to cure diseases like cancer or Alzheimer's disease or, or, or aging. Okay, so it might be possible to preserve a human. We already do it with cells and tissue samples. We, of course, preserve sperm and eggs for the IVF process. But it turns out the big issue with preserving a full human is actually the process of cooling you down and eventually warming you back up. So it's mostly about size. Um, you can cryopreserve uh, cells, you can preserve an egg, you can preserve cryopreserve cells, human cells. We do it in a lab. We have thousands of researchers. We do it all the time. You can cryopreserve small amounts of cells and, and small uh, tissues. Um, it's... The thing is mostly about size, because if you have a bigger organ, it just takes longer for the organ to cool down. That's that's basically the reason. It's just physics. Um, now, so, okay, so going a little more detail into the techniques in cryopreservation, I mean, what, what you also have to do, so if you lower the temperature uh, of cells or of an organ, um, ice forms, and ice is... can can create all sorts of problems. You get ice crystals that can damage uh, cells and can uh, damage all kinds of molecules inside cells and so can create a lot of problems. So what you typically do, although there's different techniques, but what we typically do uh, to avoid ice formation is use uh, cryoprotectants, or basically antifreeze solutions. Um, so use these cryoprotectants um, that prevent ice formation. Uh, and this makes it... Um, this makes it, uh, you know, a, the preservation of biological materials much more viable, basically. The problem that arises when you scale this up is the time it takes for the cells to cool down and the chemicals that are used for cryoprotectant. The chemicals themselves are toxic to humans, so the hope is over time we'll be able to figure out those issues and then make sure that when we bring people back to life, we don't kill them in the process. But of course, this depends on the temperature you expose um, and how long a particular organ or tissue is exposed to the cryoprotectant. So again, going back to an issue of size, if you have a large organ, uh, it's going to take, down to cool, take longer to cool down uh, and it's going to therefore be exposed for longer to cryoprotectants, um, which then start to become toxic. So, so yeah, it's, it's basically a, a problem of size. Um, so, so, okay, so what is the solution? Well, the, sol- the solution is mostly optimizing, or one of the things we're focusing is optimizing cryoprotectants to make them less toxic. And, you know, there, there is work along these lines as well. Um, so, so there are various approaches now that can be used for uh, minimizing toxicity uh, of cryoprotectants. The other challenge is that different parts of the body may need to be cooled at different rates to limit the potential for molecular damage through the freezing process. If you have larger organs, sometimes you can have different cooling rates in different parts of the organ and that can create problems, including fractures. Um, So there can be a lot of molecular, cellular, even structural damage from uh, from cryopreservation of larger organs. Yes. Um, so so uh, absolutely, it is. Uh, I think it is very damaging uh, procedure at the moment, which is why we need to to uh, improve the methods. And we'll be back with more moonshot in a moment. 
there's clearly some problems with the cryopreservation process. But I've still got a bunch of questions, some of them ethical, some of them technical. But at the top of my list is reanimation. When you opt to have your body preserved, you've got no idea when, if ever, you'll be woken up. So, who makes that call? Who decides that it's time to bring everyone out of their preserved state and give them another shot at life? Here's Peter Solakides from Southern Cryonics again. Okay, that's going to be decided by, I won't be there, but whoever is running the organisation, Southern Cryonics. And typically, uh, the thinking is it'll be a sort of a last in, first out sort of thing. The people who were put in last would probably be the ones that were suspended in the best using the latest formulations, and they would probably be the first out. And the decision will be made based on the science at the time and the medicine available to check that this thing is a safe process for you to be uh, uh, to be revived. And, you know, it'll go through the same sorts of things as what would happen uh, in everything else. There would be obviously animal studies. There would be... And let me also back off a little bit here. Let me back off a little bit. If you think about it, if it's possible to revive people, if it's possible to revive people in the future, it's going to be a very common practice. Not through cryonics, but just a common practice generally. Because what will happen is, if people either don't die anymore or are easily revived, then people will just be suspended. So that the technology and the science will easily be there to bring people back. And the decision will be made, as I said, most likely on a last-in, first-out basis out to be revived. What are the ethics of when you would wake someone up? <laughs> like, is, is it like you would only wake someone up when... Uh, you know, whatever the problem is that they were facing has been solved or, you know, do we wake them up when we can give them another 50 years or another 100 years? Like, um, you know, have you have you given any thought to, to sort of like that aspect of chronics um, as to when, if it does work, like when should we wake people up? Well, clearly if someone died of cancer, you can only revive them when cancer, the cancer that killed them is cured. I mean, there's no way around it. Uh, I mean, I would argue that I would only want to be revived when aging is cured as well. Um, I mean, my, my take on it is also that, okay, so we, we previously touched upon the issue of uh, how complicated someone is. So I said, all right, cryopreservation is not that complicated compared to curing cancer or Alzheimer's or aging. Okay. So, uh, but then... Well, how do you put reviving someone that's been cryopreserved with today's technology in that in that frame? I, I would put it really high, really above everything else. So my point is, when we reach the technology to revive someone that's been cryopreserved now, the level of technology you must have at that time means that for sure we've cured aging, cancer, Alzheimer's, all of those diseases. I mean, life is going to be so different. I mean, life is going to be oh, it's going to be like if someone from a thousand years ago came here now, <laughs> you know, it'd be the same thing. So it'd be so different, so technological advanced um, that all of these diseases and, and aging would be cured. So, um, so that, that's my take is that the time when the technology is there to revive someone who's been cryopreserved with current technologies, uh, I mean, we're going to be so much ahead in terms of, um, other biomedical interventions are our ability to um, intervene in the human body to redesign life itself that uh, uh, those those issues are probably 
uh, not not that relevant anymore. You know, I guess I guess in all of this, there's probably also like a moral um, question about okay, like even if this is possible, should we be doing it? Well, uh, you know, I, I people tell me is it is it uh, correct to live more than the average lifespan? I say you're absolutely right. The average lifespan was 60 years old about 40 years ago, so we should kill everybody above 60. You know, that's. I mean, yeah, isn't that isn't that a legitimate? You know, why should we let anybody go above sixty? It's just that people change their framing. Every ten years, the lifespan, the average lifespan increases, and people just change their framing. So, what do you do? Uh, the average lifespan's eighty-two. Let's kill everybody above eighty-two. It's, it's immoral for them to go longer than eighty-two. But the, the the issue is this: there's a few issues associated with this. One is overcrowding the future, and uh, and the three hundred, four hundred chronics people suspended and i don't think that's remember once i said there's an advantage of not having too many a few thousand suspended is not going to overcrowd the future <laughs> if that's if that's the case so that's not an issue the issue about wanting to live longer but uh most people want to live longer than their normal life the only difference between the chronic sort of person is that they they will do it with a jump a jump into the future it's not necessarily straight away uh so so the morality part is uh, you know, you, there are other issues as well. Should you spend your money on this rather than giving it to your uh, relatives? And the amount of money is normally through life insurance, and it's also a decision. It's your money. It's a decision you're making, and it's not phenomenal sorts of money. It's not like it's going to cost you ten million dollars to do it. You're talking about one hundred and fifty thousand paid through life insurance. So it's not. You know, I, I don't have the same. I, I can understand why people ask the question, but I don't really. To me, the question doesn't have that much of a of a of of solidness to it, if I can say that. Given what you know about um, about cryopreservation, uh, would you try it? Uh, probably yes. I uh, I so you know full disclosure. I'm not signed up for cryonics. I know a lot of people who are signed up for cryonics. Uh, I'm not signed up. Um, I think that it's still quite expensive. I think if I were to die today, I mean, my 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 money, when well, as a scientist, is not that much. It would go to uh, to my children. Um, so I mean, uh, I'm a widower, so they don't have a my my two daughters don't have a mother. So um, if they were to lose their father as well, at least they would have some some money to um, to uh, to carry on their lives. Um, so that's that's a choice. I mean, I think you know, 20 years from now, um, I guess when my children are grown up, um, you know, if I'm diagnosed with a terminal condition, um, then yes, if I have the, fi- I would say if I have the financial resources, then yes, I would opt to be cryopreserved.
Thanks so much for joining us on the first episode of our new season of Moonshot. We've got plenty more in store for you this season, so make sure you're subscribed so that you get the latest updates to the show. Moonshot is a production of Lawson Media. It's hosted by me, Christopher Lawson, and also Andrew Moon. Our theme music is from the incredible Breakmaster Cylinder, and our artwork is from Andrew Millist. Remember, you can find out more about the show at our website, moonshot.audio, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Moonshot Pod. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.